0: Well, in uh, 2004, a movie came out that barely made a blip on the radar. It cost about $400,000 to make. Um, But tell you what, I've I've got probably like five minutes, just so so you're aware. It's okay. No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm glad. Ed's going to read the scripture here in just a moment. Okay. So, uh, and it's it's a good one this week. Uh, It's a doozy, uh, as we'll see in a moment. But anyway, 2004, this movie was released. It cost about $400,000 to make. But opening weekend, it only made $116,000. All right, so not very good return on investment. However, through word of mouth, through second-run theaters, through DVD sales, this movie went on after one year of being out, made $44.5 million dollars. All right, so now you're probably wondering, okay, wait, it costs $400,000 to make, opening weekend only $116,000, and yet it goes on to make $44.5 million. What movie is this? Well, I want to see if you can guess. It's a movie about a guy who's unemployed, and he's living out of an RV. And he's always talking about his football days back in high school, wishing he could relive those. But his, his mom ends up getting injured in an accident. So he's get called in to help care for his two nephews. Now, his nephews, they're not what you'd expect. One is a 32-year-old who's at home, basically just online, talking to women in chat rooms all day. The other one is still in high school. And he's, you know, he's trying to help one of his friends become a uh, student body president. He's also trying to get a date you know, with this girl. But this is the movie. Anyone know what movie I'm talking about? Oh, I got a couple hands. Hey, yeah, Napoleon Dynamite. Now, how many of you have actually seen Napoleon Dynamite? Okay, quite a few of you. Of, of course, it made $44.5 million. I expect a few people in here to have actually seen it. Right, now, some of you saw it. How many of you actually enjoyed it? Okay, my hand's up, but not very many of yours are. Right, yeah, if you've never seen the film, it's this really quirky, random film. It's this comedy that barely has any sort of storyline uh, to it. But... I thought I would grace you with the presence of one scene. So you get a flavor for what this movie is like. So here's one small scene from Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... If you thought that was funny, like I do... I y- <laughs> if, you, if you thought that was funny, you'll like the movie. If you are now scarred for life, uh, you might want to avoid it. All right, That scene right there it does nothing to move the story forward. Absolutely nothing. And there are several scenes like that. It, it turns out that if you go and like I had some friends listen to the commentary, like the director's cut, it turns out the guys who wrote the film, half the scenes are like autobiographical, like things that really happened from their childhood. So that one right there, even though it didn't move the story forward, that happened when they were kids. They said their bus pulled up and there was this farmer out in his field and he shot his cow. Uh, so they thought that'd be a great scene in a movie. Right now, For those of you who have seen the movie and you heard my description, you probably were thinking something was wrong with it. And you would be right. I made it sound like it was about this character named Uncle Rico. Everything I told you about Uncle Rico was true. He really is this unemployed guy. I think he's supposedly like, separated from his wife. He's always reliving the glory days. He keeps saying throughout the movie, man, if Coach just would have put me in, we would have won state. If Coach, I could throw, I could throw a ball a half a mile. I mean, oh, I, I could throw him over that mountains. I mean, he, he's always trying to relive his glory days. But like all the other characters in the movie, Uncle Rico is just weird. Right? He's just odd. Right? If you notice, if for those of you that are familiar with the film or have it and want to go rewatch it now this weekend... He's always smelling things. I mean, it's just odd. It's weird. But everyone in the movie is weird. And that's what makes it a comedy. Now, if you'd never seen the film, and you heard just my first description, you would go into the movie thinking it's about Uncle Rico. And so as the movie gets going, you would be really confused. Because all you would see is this character Napoleon, the weird guy that walked out of the house and said hi to Lyle, the guy getting ready to shoot his cow. And you'd be confused, like, where's Uncle Rico? Where's this guy that lives out of the RV? Where's the guy that, that wants to relive his football days? And then he would appear, and you'd think, oh, finally, now the protagonist is here. But then he'd disappear, and you'd continue to follow Napoleon. You'd be confused, might be a little frustrated, and you'd probably miss some of the comedy moments that are there, because you're still trying to figure out, where's Uncle Rico? He said it was about Uncle Rico. Today we're gonna dive into First Peter, a section in chapter three, and, and into chapter four, that is very confusing. Right? It it, it's, it it has several things in it that just make you pause and go, huh? What? And if you get bogged down in the difficulties of this passage, you will miss the grander story that's there. It would be like trying to watch Napoleon Dynamite thinking it's about Uncle Rico. And you would end up being confused, you'd be frustrated. But today what we're going to do is go into this difficult passage and we're going to actually start to see there's something there for us. And we're going to capture the grander story and we're going to see what God has for us. Because if you follow Jesus, Peter has some very important things for you. And if you don't follow Jesus yet, this gives you a glimpse of what it looks like to actually begin this spiritual journey. So with that, let me pray. Father, as we open up to First Peter, may you be our teacher today. May you be the one who illuminates what we need to see and hear. And Father, I realize I cannot answer all of these difficulties adequately. I'm not even going to be able to get to everything that's in this. That's why we need you to be the one to help us to see, to learn, and to be transformed by it. And so Father, for everyone here and the spiritual questions that today's passage may raise, may you be the one to answer them in a way that keeps us following you by faith. And to Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, with that, I will invite Ed to come up and read. Open your Bibles up, uh, whether it's digital or paper, to 1 Peter chapter 3. Last week, we did a little section out of chapter 3 and a section out of chapter 4 as we looked at the idea of suffering. Today, we bridge those two sections, so we're going to capture what was in between. All right, so because you have to listen to me for like another 30 minutes, I thought you'd want to hear from Ed. All right, go for it.
1: For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, your, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking, for whomever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when they do not join them in the same flood of debauchery that they malign you. But they will give account to him for who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, They might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be along glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
0: All right, thank you so much, Ed. All right, so let's just uh, let's jump right into those uh, Uncle Rico passages. The The first one we see there is in verse 19. Uh, We see Peter says that he, Jesus, went and proclaimed, or you could translate it preached, to the spirits in prison. Now, the word spirits there, I found out this week, in the Greek, it usually refers to evil spirits. And yet here, you see, if you keep going in verse 20, he ties these spirits back to the days of Noah. So it seems that he's referring to these as people. There's only one other time in all of the scripture that that particular Greek word refers to people. So that adds a little bit of the confusion. And then there's also the question of, well, when did Jesus preach to these spirits? It, it, were these spirits, is this prison, is it hell? Is it purgatory? Was was it, you know, something else? Was it like an actual jail? And, and was it while he was dead, after he died on the cross, but before he resurrected? Or was it before he even came to earth? Was it after? I mean, it just leaves in a lot of questions. And and it kind of continues down there in chapter 4, verse 6, when it says that uh, he was, uh, where, I skipped it. Oh, yeah, so that he preached even to those who were dead. So you've got this kind of going on. But that's not all. In verse 21, back there in chapter 3, you see Peter says that baptism, which corresponds to the story about Noah, now saves you. And, and if you come from a tradition where, you know, baptism, you know, they maybe talked about it like salvation. There are some denominations that believe that you must be baptized in order to be saved. But if you come from like a, a Baptist or maybe an evangelical free background or non-denominational, you might stumble on that a little bit. Thinking, well, wait, my pastor, my youth pastor told me that baptism does not save you. And now here's Peter saying it does. And so for you, it, it, that's causing a little bit of a problem. And then down there in chapter 4, verse 1, you see it says that for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And if you're honest, you really look at that, you start thinking, well, wait a second, I've, I've suffered, but I still struggle with sin. I haven't ceased from sin. And, and, and so you see these difficulties And sometimes it causes you just like, I I don't get it. I put it away. Or you just want to conveniently ignore it. Or or some people even begin to say, you know what? This proves Christianity is not reliable. I mean, it's contradicting itself. And so they use things like this to say, forget it. I'm not even going to look into it. I'm going to just tell you right now, we are going to look at these, but we're not going to be able to fully answer them. Because I think if we get bogged down by these It's like we're trying to watch Napoleon Dynamite thinking about Uncle Rico. It's going to get us off track. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to come back and we're going to, in a sense, elevate the story. We're going to look at what is there, what is reliable, because there's some very important things for people to hear. That if you claim to follow Jesus, there's some things in here that you need. And it's going to empower you to go and follow Jesus in a way that, that helps you to do what's right, to give glory to God, and you get joy in the process. And today we're going to look at four things that I see Peter reminding us to do. He's going to tell us to remember. And the first thing that I see him tell us to remember is the cross. Remember the cross. Look right there in verse 18 of chapter 3. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, right? He suffered on the cross. He died in our place. And, And it even says that he, Jesus, was the righteous one, And he died for us, the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. This is the gospel message. This is what it's all about. That the sinless son of God, the second member of the Trinity, comes down to earth, takes on human flesh, lives a sinless life, but then goes and dies a sinner's death. He took the penalty that was due to us, And absorbed it and took it himself so that we might be forgiven. So that justice could be done. Sin could be defeated. But we were then free and forgiven. If you don't follow Jesus yet, that is the core of Christianity. Don't get caught up in a bunch of other debates. You've got to wrestle with that first. That's the key and core issue. Is that story right there true? And if it is, what does it mean for you? That's what it's all about. That's why I don't want you getting off by these other passages. And the crazy thing is, right after nailing down this core passage, he then just dives into one of these Uncle Rico passages. Right there in verse 19, the one, first one we've already looked at, that, uh, in which he, Jesus, proclaimed or preached to the spirits in prison. And was, we've already said, when did this take place? Where was it at? You know, maybe it was this idea of Jesus's mercy. He he goes down to, let's say they were in hell. And out of his mercy, he goes to these people who lived at the time of Noah. So they wouldn't have heard about Jesus. So maybe he goes down and he shows mercy to them. But I'll be honest, I struggle with that. Because in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27, it says that it is appointed to man once to die and then to judgment. And so that verse there tells us that, like, there's no reincarnation. Like, you've got this one life to live. So it's a little bit like YOLO, you know, you only live once. But yet it's also YODO, you only die once. And once you die the once, that's it. It's now to judgment. How did you live your life? And you're going to be judged on that. And yet, here's this idea of Jesus going and preaching to the dead. Why? Some commentators, they said it wasn't that it was to go and give mercy. It was to go and give a justification because these people heard the preaching of Noah. That as Noah is building this ark, people are coming and laughing at him. He's warning them. The judgment of God is going to come. Maybe the cross is the full revealing of God's justice, his judgment. That his wrath comes against sin. And rather than the people being wiped out for their sin, Jesus takes it. So maybe Jesus is there to, to justify why they are in this prison. Because if they didn't respond to Noah, they wouldn't have responded to Jesus. I don't know. And the thing is, the commentators don't know either. I, I looked at several this week. And, and the better ones, they were at least honest enough to say, okay, here are the various theories of what this means. Here's where I land on it. This seems the best to me. But then they would basically say, but we don't know. We don't fully know. But here's what we do fully know. The first part, Jesus suffered once for sins. He died on a cross that story is prophesied in the Old Testament and it's proclaimed in the New Testament. And you see it in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and it's told again in the book of Acts and it's told again in the letter of the Romans and it's told again through all the letters. It's the central core thing and it's there throughout the entire scriptures. But this whole thing about Jesus going and preaching to the dead, it's only right here in First Peter. And so what that means first is you can't let yourself get dis- like distracted by these singular minor things and miss the major also you got to be careful not to go and build some sort of doctrine all about this because this is the only place it's really talked about now i'm not saying it's unbiblical obviously i can't because it's in the bible but what i am saying is that you don't go and create an entire doctrinal system around something that's questionable That's a great way to start a cult, by the way. So if you would like to start a cult, take a passage like this, build some theological framework around it, and you'll probably be able to get a few followers and and teach something, and they'll think you're great, and then you'll die in your heresy. Instead, stick with what we know, with what is there reliably, and things like this, do what you can to keep them in context. Sometimes you come across a difficulty. Just by looking at the context around it helps. In, In this case, not so much. But if you can't figure it out from the context there, how does it fit into the broader scheme of the whole entire book? And and, and even more so, how does it fit in the whole entire scheme of the entire Bible? Because then as you start looking at it, it starts sometimes to make more sense. Or you at least become comfortable knowing that these strange, odd Uncle Rico passages are there. And you're okay Because you know, God's the one who wrote this. His ways are higher than mine. I don't have to figure it all out. What I do need to go is with the things that God has made clear. And what he's made clear is the cross. So go with the cross. Remember the cross. That's the first thing you need to help you as you follow Jesus. Or if you're looking into following Jesus, look at the cross. So the first thing we need to do is remember the cross. Because when we remember the cross, it does something for us. Look down at chapter 4, verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, right? So there it is again. He, he went to th- through the cross. So what does it do for us? Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. When you remember the cross, when you start to make that the central core of who you are and what you think about, it changes the way you think. You begin to think like Jesus. That begins to help you to handle your suffering, Because remember the context all around this. Right before this section and right after, we look at suffering. So if you're going through suffering, remember the cross. Because as you remember the cross, it changes the way you think. And you'll be able to respond in a way that Jesus would want you to respond. Also, as you begin to arm yourselves in a new way of thinking, you begin to think like Christ. And when Jesus went to the cross, his attention was on the Father the one who called him to do this, this was their plan from the very beginning, and his heart, his mind was on us because we were the ones who needed to be saved. The book of Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Well, If I look at the cross, I don't see a lot of joy in it. I mean, nails getting driven into your wrists, you know, a crown of thorns jabbed on your head. I mean, having your, your back whipped. I didn't see much joy in it. No, it was on the other side of it. It was getting you Having you come back. Because remember, why did Jesus go through the suffering? To bring you back to God. That was the joy. And as you begin to take on the same thinking, as you remember the cross, it will empower you to think about the Father, to think about what's best for others, and it will arm you with that. So the first thing that Peter tells us to do, don't get distracted by the Uncle Rico passage. Remember the cross. The second thing I think he wants us to do is to remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Down there in chapter, I mean, sorry, chapter 3, verse 21, Peter says, Baptism, which corresponds with the story about Noah, now saves you. If you know the story of Noah, God was going to bring judgment upon the people. And so he tells Noah to build an ark and then bring two of every animal and his family onto the ark. God would save them as he floods the earth, wipes off everything else, and then God, in a sense, is going to start new. Well, for Peter, that seems to point to baptism. The, the, the idea that, that Noah and his family go through the ark, through the water, and are saved. But, excuse me, as I look at it, I don't think Peter really truly believes that it's baptism that saves you. Now, I know that sounds like I'm contradicting him, but let me explain. Peter spent three years hanging out with Jesus, followed him all around. He heard him teach. He saw all the miracles. And then he saw this guy that he thought was the Messiah die on a cross. And he thought it all was going to come crashing to an end. It was over. And then Jesus rose from the dead. And that changed Everything. And so in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends at the Jewish feast of Pentecost, and there's all this commotion, and all these people gather around like, what in the world is going on? It's Peter who stands up and preaches to people. And what does he preach? He doesn't say, you guys need to all repent, be baptized. He says, Jesus Christ died on a cross and rose again from the dead. And then again in Acts chapter 10, we see Peter kind of hungry. He's waiting for supper to be made, and so he goes up on top of this roof, and he falls asleep. Well, as he's having a little nap, he has a dream. And the same dream happens three times in a row. And when he wakes up, and we won't go into the whole thing, but basically God messes with his theology and helps this young Jewish boy, Peter, who was following a Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who thought that this gospel was for the Jews, and it was, but God helps him through the dream see that the gospel is also for the Gentiles. It's for those that weren't Jewish. And right as he wakes up, Guys show up at the door of the house saying, we've been sent here by a Roman centurion named Cornelius. God gave him a dream to come and find you because you have something to say to us. And so Peter goes with them, walks into Cornelius's house, and here's Cornelius and all of his family gathered, none of them Jewish. And yet Peter preaches the gospel to them. And what happens? They all place their faith in Christ. He sees it happen, and he didn't walk in and say, oh, you Romans, you need to all be baptized. He says, Jesus died on a cross and rose again from the dead. Peter, I believe, believes that the salvation comes through Christ, not through baptism. However, as soon as Peter gets done preaching in Acts chapter 2, and these people respond to the gospel and say yes to following Jesus, the first thing he says to them is be baptized. In Acts chapter 10, when Cornelius and all of his family, they respond to the gospel, the very first thing he says is, why should we withhold baptism from them? You see, whenever you read Paul's letters or Peter's letter here, there's this underlying assumption that if you follow Jesus, you have been baptized. Because baptism is all about identity. It's identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In fact, if you were to, uh, if there was a Muslim who walked up to another Muslim and said, you know, I like Jesus, it probably wouldn't cause much of a stir because Jesus is considered one of the prophets of Islam. They have several prophets. Just the greatest of their prophets is Muhammad. However, if a Muslim were to say, I like Jesus, and gets baptized in the name of Jesus, they got baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now there's a problem that's when they would be excommunicated. They would be expelled. Some of them would even be killed because they're now saying, I no longer followed Muhammad. I now identify with Jesus. I identify with his death, burial, and resurrection. I'm no longer a person of the Quran. I'm now a person of the book. I am about the Bible. I'm about Jesus. Baptism is about identity. And so while baptism itself doesn't save you, it's important. Because it's publicly saying, I identify with the cross, with the death of Christ, with his burial and his resurrection. That is the most important thing about me. And so if you are here today and you say, I follow Jesus, but have never been baptized, I want to encourage you, be baptized. Go public with your faith. Say yes. Let this be the core of your identity and let others know. Back in in Peter's day, there were risks involved that we've got Muslim brothers and sisters that it has cost them family. It's cost them possessions. It's cost them their living quarters. For some people it's cost them their lives. And yet if Jesus could give up his life for us, then we can give up our life to follow him. So if you have never been baptized, I encourage you take out that connection card that's in your handout and just simply write the word baptism on it. And as we uh, take up our offering later, Just drop that in, and that will begin a conversation. We've not scheduled anything. We don't have anything planned. But if you're ready to make that step, we will do what we can to help you make that step. That if you're saying, I follow Jesus, it's time for me to identify with this story, then let's do it. Let's find a way to make it happen. And we want to celebrate that. Because then, as you are baptized, you can then begin to remember your baptism. So that when the pressures come, when there's stress, when people are tempting you to engage in things that you know aren't right, you can look back at your baptism and you can say, you know what? This is what I'm about. This is what I stand for. So no matter what doubts begin to creep in, you have something to rely on. It becomes almost like a rock to you. So remember the cross and remember your baptism. But there's another thing I see in here. I see Peter also encouraging us to remember the end. To remember the end. Look at verse 7 down there in chapter 4. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Have any of you ever heard of reverse engineering? Uh, Yeah, I see a few of you kind of nodding at me. All right, Reverse engineering is simply looking at the end product, beginning there. What is everything? How do you want it to look? And then you kind of work your way backwards to begin, what steps do I need to take to get there? So, for instance, if you were to go into your backyard and decide you're going to build a deck, you wouldn't just drive to the lumberyard and begin buying some stuff. No, you're out in your backyard, you're measuring, you're figuring out how high is it going to be? Are we going to build steps? How many steps? Am I going to have a railing around it? How many you know, spindles do I need? You've got to figure it all out. And then you drive to the lumber yard and get what you need and begin the process of getting there. But you have to start with the end in mind. But imagine that you applied that idea into your spiritual life. What do you want to look like when you're 80, 90 years old? Do you, do you want to be a person who, when someone talks to you, you can just begin to quote the Bible. And, and like this treasure trove of wisdom comes out of you from the scriptures. Would you like to see your life like that? then begin now. Start reading. Just start getting the scriptures into you. And, and it doesn't mean you have to read and study for four hours every day. You know, start 10 minutes here. Slowly starts building. Soon you're up to you know, half an hour, and then an hour, and a couple hours, and pretty soon this stuff just begins to flow out of you because you started with the end in mind. If you want to be a person of prayer, I, I don't know about you, but I've heard of these old ladies that you know, will sit at their table and pray for like three hours nonstop. And you probably think, whoa, I can barely pray for 30 seconds. You know, Three hours, start today. Just start praying 30 seconds today, 45 tomorrow, a minute, two minutes, five, 10, pretty soon you're up to an hour and you're on your way to that end product. Start with the end in mind. Remember the end. But also, I, I'm going to wreck the story for you. The grandest story of all time. Jesus wins. We already know the end of the story. And when you know the end of the story, it brings peace. No, notice what he says there. That the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Like, you, you just have this, like, calmness. There's this peace. You can think rationally about things. You don't go into panic mode. Just this week, there was uh, the World Series, and they Cleveland Indians against the Chicago Cubs, and they reached Game 7. All right, it's always fun when you can see a series get to Game 7. But this Game 7 was a classic. The Cubs looked like they were going to run away with it. They built a 5-1 lead. But then, through a wild pitch, the Indians did the unthinkable. It hadn't happened, I think, in like 70 years. They actually scored two runs on one wild pitch, get it to 5-3. But then a 39-year-old catcher playing in his last major league game, he's announced his retirement, he walks up and smacks a, a solo home run to put the Cubs up 6-3, to three. and you think, that's it. The Cubs are sealing this up. They're going to win. And then all of a sudden, the eighth inning came. Indians happened to scrap out a run. And then they hit a two-run homer off of one of the best relievers for the Cubs to tie it up 6-6, six to six. and every Cub fan thought, there really is a curse. If you're not familiar with the Cubs, they've been living without a world championship for 108 years. And it all ties back to this time they made the World Series, and they, this guy wanted to bring his goat into the stadium, and they wouldn't let him. And he's like, that's it. And he supposedly put this curse on the Cubs, and they've never won a championship since. It's the curse of the goat. And when the Indians hit that two-run home run, I think every Cub fan thought, I want to kill every goat in the world. Or invite every goat. You know, I don't know. They just thought, there really is a curse. It's, it's over. It's done. We're going to lose. And then... No one scores in the ninth inning. It's going into extra innings, and a rain delay comes. saw a friend of mine uh, yesterday, or or Friday, at the the, uh, W, and uh, he's a big Cubs fan, and so I started talking to him about the game, and he said when when it got to the tenth inning, the Cubs scored two runs to go up eight to six, but the Indians were coming back. They scored one run, they had another guy on base, and the winning run steps up to the plate. And he said his son is on the ground. It's like 11.30 at night. He's way past his bedtime. He's a seventh grader. And he's crying. And he's pounding the floor. And he's like, I can't take it. And then the runner, I mean the, the batter, hit it to third base, throw it to first. They got the out. Three outs. The Cubs win. After 108 years without a championship, the Cubs finally are world champ- Well major league. It's not really the world. I mean, we got one team from Canada, but they won. They won. Now that seventh grade son who was in tears on the floor, if he went back and watched the game, do you think he'd be down on the floor crying, pounding it, saying, I can't take it? No, he could watch the game. Even when the Indians hit the two run home run to tie it up in the eighth, he can sit back and go, I know the end. I know what's going to happen. And he's calm and he's cool. He's sober-minded because he knows the end. When you see the end, you know that Jesus wins. It brings a peace that surpasses understanding. You can be self-controlled. You can be sober-minded so that if your person is not elected this next Tuesday, you don't have to freak out because you have a God who's going to win in the end. And so you can handle whatever suffering because you're remembering the cross, you're remembering your baptism, and you remember the end. Jesus wins. And when you do those three things, when you remember the cross, you remember your baptism, you remember the end, you begin to do the fourth one naturally. And that is to remember to love. Remember to love. Look at verse eight. Peter says, above all, like the, the most important thing, you gotta get this, above all. Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. As he's talking about all of this, he's saying the most important thing is to love. There's a guy who founded Yahoo, and he wrote a book uh, years later. And the name of the book is Love is the Killer App. And he's right. If you want to really just zap in, if you want to get to the core of things, love. Love be a person of love. At Riverwood, we talk about loving like Jesus loved. Love is powerful. It's so powerful it can even cover over a multitude of sins. And and Peter even helps us out. He starts showing us how to love. In verse 9, he tells us to show love through hospitality. He says, "Show hospitality to one another without grumbling." When you have someone over, you don't start whining and complaining about having someone in your house? No. It's a joy. You're getting to show love to them. Enjoy it. Many of you arrive here early Sunday mornings to help set this place up. You are showing love. That's hospitality. You're creating the environment where we can come in and connect with Jesus through song and through teaching and through prayer. And even some people, as they're on their spiritual journey to finding Jesus, you're showing hospitality. You're showing love. And in verse 10, he tells us to also show love by using our spiritual gifts. He basically says that if you follow Jesus, you have some sort of spiritual gift. And unlike in 1 Corinthians and Romans, he doesn't really list any here. He just kind of gives two categories. Those who serve and those who speak. But to Peter, it doesn't matter what you have. That If you have a gift of speaking, use it. But do it with love. That if you have a gift of serving, use it. But do it through love. Show love. Why? Well, the end of verse 11. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. When you love others, you give glory to God. And you also bring joy to others. Which is the very thing that Jesus was doing through the cross. He was bringing glory to God. And he was doing this for others. It was love that took Jesus through the cross and it's love that should lead us to go through baptism. It's love that leads us to go and be a blessing to this world. So if you're a Jesus follower, don't let these uncle rico passages distract you and pull you off. Yes, we can wrestle with them. Yes, let's go and figure them out. They're here in the scriptures. But don't let them deter you from what really matters. And that is you are called to love. So, to empower you, to help you to do that. Remember the cross remember your baptism, and remember the end. And when you do that, you will remember to love. But before I end there, I want to tack on one more thing. I want you to imagine with me. Imagine with me an entire church that remembers the cross. A, A church that is centered on the gospel of Jesus. And that is the thing that fuels them on their Sundays and their growth groups as they're out in the community. Imagine a church that celebrates baptism. Because when someone's being baptized, they're publicly tying themselves, they're identifying with this gospel message. They're going public with their faith. They're saying God is at work. And when we see people who've been wrestling with things come to this place, we celebrate. And remember, just imagine what it would be like if a church remembered the end A church that didn't panic when the political realm isn't going the way we want, That doesn't panic when certain things are happening. Even if like a community seems to be against them. Because they're remembering the end. They remember. Jesus wins. Imagine the peace that would bring. Imagine a church like that. Riverwood is that church. We are becoming that church. But for us to become that church... It means it also has to infiltrate us as individuals. That is why I call you to remember the cross, to remember your baptism, and to remember the end. Because if you'll do that, I know without a doubt you will go and remember to love. And we will be a force in this community and in our workplaces, and in our neighborhoods, and with all of our relationships. And we will see God do what only he can do. He will change lives. It starts with us. So that's why I invite you. Let's be a church that remembers. Let's remember Christ. So Father, we just pray right now that you would empower us to do that. To be a church that remembers. That day in and day out, our eyesight wouldn't just get on our schedules. And it wouldn't just get wrapped up in what to wear and what to eat. It wouldn't get caught up in, in uh, uh, the political schemes of, of, of man. That the thing that's on our attention, that's first in our, in our mind is the cross. Jesus, you went and paid it all. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We could never earn our way back. Our sin was so great. Jesus, you went and paid it for us. You gave us this amazing grace. And so we say thank you. And because of that, many of us in this room have responded in baptism. I pray for anyone here who is not, that if you're convicting them right now, they're saying, I need to do this you'd give them the courage to write that down on their card, to, to let, let it be known, and to make this step, despite what others may say about them, despite what the, the fears that their, their family or co-workers might think of them if they, if they go public with their faith. Because Jesus, you went public with your love for us by dying on a cross. So we can do this for you out of love. But God, I also pray you'd help us to remember the end, and that by doing so, it'd help us to remain sober-minded and self-controlled, that we would remain calm, That even when a world around us keeps trying to pull us into their passions, into their self-centeredness, we would just have a steadiness about us because our faith and trust is in you because we know that you are God and you are good and you are in control. And Father, you want to send us to be lovers, to love like Jesus loved because there are people out there that are hurting. They've sought the path of the world. They thought that was the way uphill and it is just leading them downhill. And what they need to hear about is Jesus. And it's us that you want to send to them. To display it through our actions. That they'd hear it in our words. They'd see it in our eyes. And they'd even just sense it in our presence as we listen to them. So God, change us so that you can send us to go and change others. Because they need to hear about the cross. They need to see our baptism. And they need to hear about the end. And they would sense it in our love. So Father, change us. Continue this work in us. Restore the image of Christ in us so that we will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived and even one day leave behind what Jesus left behind. We pray and ask for this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.